1920, a woman stood on the edge of the Bendler Bridge in Berlin, staring at the water below and reflecting on how fascinating it was. She'd always wondered about the life it held, about what lay beneath the surface, about the wonders of the sea. Then, taking a deep breath, she jumped off the bridge in an attempt to kill herself. She was eventually pulled from the Landwehr Canal Alive but shaken, trembling with the cold, drenched to the bone and afraid. People were shouting. A crowd had gathered. There were policemen all around her. She was wrapped in a blanket and taken to a police post where she was provided with a strong, hot beverage while the police peppered her with questions. Who was she? Where was she from? Why did she jump? Was she in trouble? The young woman was silent, frightened, as white as a sheet. She refused to answer questions about herself or her motives for attempting suicide. She was eventually transferred to the Elizabeth Hospital, where nurses enveloped her in a warm white gown and took stock of her belongings. She had no identification on her, no papers in her pockets, no labels, nothing that the police could use to identify her. She was promptly admitted to a mental hospital, the Daldorf Asylum, under the name Madame Unknown. An examination was conducted upon her arrival. Madame Unknown weighed at 110 pounds and stood at just under 5 feet 2. She silently and adamantly refused to reveal her identity. No amount of badgering by doctors, nurses, care workers or police officers could sway her. She ended up staying at the asylum for nearly two years. Her first six months there, she said nothing at all. She was aloof, quiet, and mysterious. She was also dangerously depressed, according to the head nurse at Daldorf. She wouldn't speak or eat. She would have nightmares when she could fall asleep and would tremble under her blankets. What's more, she had strange scars on her body. According to a medical report, her body was covered with, quote, many lacerations. When she finally spoke, it was with a Russian accent. However, she would hardly ever speak in Russian to anyone in the asylum. It was impossible for them to verify if she was a native Russian speaker. The girl's detached behavior drew the attention of a fellow Daldorf patient, Clara Puthert, who was described as a big, lean, bony, 51-year-old proletarian. Clara was bored, angry, and restless, and had been committed to the asylum after she'd falsely accused her neighbors of stealing her money. She was also a big drinker and had the bad habit of slapping people when they said something she didn't like. To Clara, Madame Unknown seemed somewhat familiar to her. The two became fast friends. They considered themselves outcasts in the asylum, surrounded by sputtering, incontinent lunatics and bonded over their individual eccentricities. We'll get back to what became of their friendship in a minute. To better understand what came next, we have to journey back to the past, to nearly two years before the incident in Berlin. Thank you. 
I'm Sonali Burgis, and you're listening to Grifter. On July 17th, 1918, the Imperial Romanovs, Tsar Nicholas II, his wife, Serena Alexandra, who was also Queen Victoria's granddaughter, and their five children, Alexis, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, were murdered by their Bolshevik guards in a basement in Ekaterinburg, Russia. This was during the Bolshevik Revolution and outbreak of civil war in Russia, a chaotic and tumultuous period in the country's history. Following the disastrous Russo-Japanese War that led to the Russian Revolution of 1905, Nicholas, who was related to King George V, reluctantly signed a manifesto that promised representative government and basic civil liberties in Russia. However, Nicholas soon retracted most of these concessions, and as a consequence, the Bolsheviks and other revolutionary groups slowly began to garner widespread support. In 1914, Nicholas led his country into another expensive war, resulting in widespread misery in Russia as food became scarce Soldiers were killed, and devastating defeats on the Eastern Front demonstrated his ineffectual leadership. In March 1917, an army garrison at Petrograd joined striking workers in demanding socialist reforms, and Nicholas was forced to abdicate and flee with his family to the Ural Mountains, where they were to meet their untimely deaths. After 300 years of imperial rule, the Romanov Empire ended in a chaos of gunfire and bayonets. According to an official monarchist report, the bodies of the Romanovs were taken into the forest, hacked to pieces, soaked in gasoline and sulfuric acid, and burned. To the public, the Romanovs had seemingly vanished without a trace, and at the time, no one could say what had happened to them. Okay, with that gruesome backstory in mind, let's return to Madame Unknown and Clara Puthart at the Daldorf Asylum in 1921. In Madame Unknown's second year at the asylum, European newspapers reported strange rumors out of Russia. One of the imperial daughters, it was said, had escaped the basement alive. Clara found the newspaper photographs of the recently assassinated Russian imperial family and noticed her new friend bore a striking resemblance to one of the four daughters, Tatiana. Upon discovering the photographs, Clara immediately jumped to conclusions and suspected that the unknown woman, her friend, was actually the missing Russian royal. In fact, Clara was so sure of this that she told everyone she met all about her royal friend from the asylum. She'd excitedly sounded an alarm, and soon there were whispers throughout the asylum. The unknown woman was actually a Russian duchess. When Clara was released from the hospital, she followed up on her suspicions by seeking out high-ranking Russian expats and emigres, urging them to come and see the woman whom she believed was the Grand Duchess Tatiana the second oldest Romanov daughter. 
Clara soon took a handful of former Romanov friends and servants to meet the girl, all of whom were convinced on sight alone that she was the late Tsar's daughter. However, the woman herself gave no encouragement and remained persistently quiet and distracted, adamantly avoiding any inquests that came her way. early 1920s, due to the Bolshevik Revolution, there were hundreds of thousands of Russian refugees in Germany. As a result, several shops, restaurants, theatres and churches had been erected to serve the Russian colonies in Berlin. There were also several political associations, including monarchist, fascist, socialist and communist ones. The monarchists were dedicated to finding an heir to the throne of the fallen Tsar, as there had been many claims to the throne from those outside of the Romanov family, and the monarchists were intent on having someone within the Romanov family ascend the throne. A monarchist congress was called in Bavaria, and it established the Supreme Monarchist Council, an organization that was hell-bent on selling monarchist propaganda to Russians settled in Germany. It also decided that a future Tsar had to be chosen from among the Romanov family alone, in effect concluding that a new dynasty must not be created. One Sunday in March 1922, Captain Nicholas Adolfovich von Schwab, a young Russian exile with dazzling good looks, was sitting in the inner courtyard of the Russian Embassy Church in Berlin when he was approached by a poorly dressed, tall, nervous-looking woman. It was Clara Puthart. Schwab managed the double eagle, a proto-fascist, rabidly anti-Semitic, right-wing organ of the Supreme Monarchist Council. Before the Bolshevik Revolution, he'd served as a staff captain of the personal guard detachment of the Dowager Empress Maria Fyodorovna, Tatiana's grandmother. Upon meeting Clara, Schwab was taken aback when she'd seemingly recognized the photos that he possessed of the imperial family. She told him she believed that the girl in the Daldorf Asylum was actually the Grand Duchess Tatiana. Schwab, who'd been attached to the Dowager, might have been in a better position to judge, and he considered going to Daldorf to see for himself if it really was her. After Clara left, Schwab reflected on his conversation with her. He noted that there had been several reported sightings of the Grand Duchesses in the four years since the disappearance of the Imperial family. For this reason, he didn't know if he could trust Clara. However, a few days later, Schwab decided to travel to the Daldorf Asylum to see for himself. When Madame Unknown first saw her visitors, She hid under the sheets in fear, seemingly distressed by the prospect of any confrontation, and then stated in German, quote, I do not wish to see anybody. Schwab persisted and showed her old photos of the dowager, watching as she blushed furiously and grew increasingly upset. She rebuffed her visitors and refused to satisfy their queries, 
but there was no doubt that she seemed to recognize the people in the photos that were thrust upon her. Schwab eventually left, and later that night, Madame Unknown told the nurses, quote, the gentleman has a photo of my grandmother. However, she never called herself a Romanov, nor did she deny it. Meanwhile, the unknown woman made an impression on Schwab, who was convinced that the patient truly was the Grand Duchess. He wasted no time relaying this information to the Supreme Monarchist Council, which decided to seek out people who had known the Imperial family very well, and thereby could establish the unknown woman's identity. The Supreme Council tracked down Zina Tolstoy, who had been a friend of the Serena, the Tsar's wife. If the unknown woman was truly a Grand Duchess, she would remember her mother's friend. Zina Tolstoy and her daughter visited the woman at Daldorf and brought with them photographs of the imperial family. Tolstoy also had signed portraits of the Empress Alexandra and her daughters. The unknown woman took one look at the photographs and began to weep. She had big red blotches on her cheeks and her eyes were swollen from the crying. However, she still would not utter a single word to the Tolstoy women. Zina Tolstoy could not be sure that Madame Unknown was one of the Grand Duchesses, but she seemed inclined to believe that it may be possible. Nevertheless, she pressed the Supreme Monarchist Council to send for Baroness Sophie Buxhauden, a former lady-in-waiting to the Serena. The council immediately sent for the Baroness, who, having served the Serena for five years, had known her mistress's four daughters very well. Upon seeing the mysterious patient, the Baroness acknowledged that the resemblance was uncanny, but proclaimed her quote, too short for Tatiana. Schwab was dismayed, as was Clara, who had fallen into despair following the Baroness's assertion that Madame Unknown was not a Romanov. The Baroness's denial of the woman's identity caused the Supreme Monarchist Council to lose all interest in the patient, and Schwab could not convince them to reconsider their position. Following the fiasco, Schwab visited the women again, knowing this time that pressuring the patient or even asking a direct question would get him nowhere. For the first time, she claimed, quote, I never said I was Tatiana. Schwab then offered her a list of the Romanov daughter's names. He thought if she couldn't say who she was, could she perhaps indicate who she wasn't? She surprisingly acquiesced and crossed out all the names but one. Without saying a word, Madame Unknown became Anastasia, the 20th century's greatest royal riddle never quite solved. The Berlin patient, who eventually took on the name Anna Anderson, Anna being short for Anastasia, was not the only Romanov claimant. There were at least four other women who came forward as Anastasia, seven men who claimed to be the Sarevich Alexei, and a handful 
claiming themselves to be the Tsar's other daughters. But it was the youngest daughter, Anastasia, around whom grew a cultish fascination. This was in large part thanks to Anna, whose story spun off decades' worth of tabloid fodder, becoming the source of both the classic Ingrid Bergman film Anastasia and the 1997 animated feature of the same name. Baron von Kleist, a Russian emigre who had never seen the Tsar's children before, wanted to play a role in Anastasia's identification. He, along with his wife Maria, obtained visiting rights to Daldorf to see Anna. They visited quite regularly, as often as they could, and attempted to persuade Anna to leave Daldorf and to live with them in their roomy apartment in Berlin. For the monarchists who had been banished from their homeland, Anna was a bridge back to the past, and the Kleists offered her a middle-class home outside the mental hospital. After a few months of relentless pandering by the Kleists, Anna was finally convinced to leave the asylum and agreed to move to the Kleist's apartment. The Kleists were very welcoming of Anna. They gave her her own room, bought her a simple party dress, and let her borrow anything she needed from their two daughters. Anna also went on drives to the countryside with Maria and on tours of the museums and palaces. She was treated like the royalty she purported to be. In the Kleist's home, she became the focal point of attention and was soon swarmed by streams of curious visitors who wished to debunk or validate her as the lost Grand Duchess. In the twilight between wars, Europe was filled with Romanov relations, former servants and friends, and many more Russian refugees. News of the royal family's murder had finally become public knowledge and Soviet counterintelligence gave fire to the rumor that maybe, somehow, a duchess had survived. Some of the emigres said they recognized her immediately as Anastasia, but others claimed there was not the slightest resemblance. Because of being constantly fawned over, stared at, or badgered with questions, Anna lived in a state of perpetual anxiety. She refused to speak in Russian, and she also became very ill. She was diagnosed with acute anemia and was very pale and weak. The Kleists brought in their physician to treat Anna, and the doctor estimated that she was only 25 years of age. Strangely, the Tsar's youngest daughter at the time would have been just 21. Anna frequently expressed anger if she was questioned about her background, even by her small circle of confidants, which included Clara Puthert. When too many questions over her identity were posed, she gave cryptic responses or wailed hysterically in attempts to avoid giving any precise information about her past as a duchess. She acknowledged herself as Anastasia within the small circle that she trusted. However, even with them, she was aloof and impatient. 
any attempts to trick her into revealing her true identity were met with rage. Peter Kurth, author of Anastasia, The Riddle of Anna Anderson, discovered from his exhaustive research that the subject of Anna's identity was touchy and sensitive. For instance, before Anna left Daldorf, Schwab brought her a Bible into which he'd written the royal family's passcode, a code that was meant to indicate the person in possession of it could be trusted. According to Kurt, Anna reportedly tore the page from the book and slowly ripped it to shreds. Zina Tolstoy, the Serena's friend, came to visit Anna while she was staying at the home of the Kleists. Careful not to push any buttons, she made small talk with Anna and then sat at a piano, plinking at the keys. She casually asked Anna if she played, to which Anna replied that she'd had lessons as a child, but mostly she and her siblings preferred to dance. At this, Zena began to play a waltz that her brother had written, one she'd often played for the Romanov children to dance to. Anna immediately lost all composure, collapsing on the sofa in agony. Zena too began to cry and asked Anna, in between sobs, if she'd recognized the song. Anna slowly admitted that she did, and the two women cried together. For Anna, this was a rare show of quiet, non-mercurial emotion. When it came to the closest Romanov relatives, those who could have redeemed her in an instant, she was not just aloof, she was enraged. On July 29, 1922, Baron von Kleist and his wife hosted an evening party. However, the occasion proved too much for their fragile royal guest. Anna suffered a nervous breakdown and became so ill that she had to be injected with morphine. Under the influence of the drug, Anna's spell of silence was broken. Disjointedly, Anna told, quote, the story a fragmentary, wild rendition of her life post-Ekaterinburg and pre-Bendla Bridge. She continued to tell the full story of her escape from Russia in bits and pieces, in short spurts of emotion, over the course of seven years. But that evening, she told a short version of the story, and it was slowly adapted by the Baron into a coherent narrative. The story, as it was called, went something like this. In 1918, with the rest of her family, Anna had followed the Red Soldiers down into the basement at Villa Epetiev on that fateful July evening. She remembered the cry of gunshots, her father collapsing first, her sister Tatiana falling across her to protect her. There was blood everywhere, and there were screams piercing the air. She'd received a violent blow to the head and had fainted. The next thing she knew, she was lying in a farm wagon, badly wounded and in need of medical assistance. She didn't know where she was or how she'd come to be lying in a wagon. She soon learned that she was rescued by a Bolshevik guard named Alexander Tchaikovsky. 
With Alexander and his family, his mother Maria, sister Veronica, and brother Sergei, Anna traveled out of Russia to Bucharest in Romania. Tchaikovsky told Anna that he'd found her after the massacre, still alive, and had quietly smuggled her out to the farm. In Bucharest, where Anna and the Tchaikovskys lived for over a year, Anna gave birth to Alexander's son, whom she called Alexis, after her brother. A short time after, she was married to Alexander in a Catholic church, but they did not exchange rings, nor did they have their marriage formally registered. The family lived with a gardener, who was supposedly a relative of Maria's, Tchaikovsky's mother. However, Tchaikovsky was shot and killed on the streets of Bucharest towards the end of 1919. Not long after, his young widow, depressed and alone, left her son behind in Bucharest and journeyed by herself to Germany, a country she'd known as a child, to seek out her mother's relations. Somehow, she'd found herself on the Bendler Bridge in the Landwehr Canal, alone and afraid, a feeling of helplessness overwhelming her, compelling her to throw herself off the bridge. Anna later claimed that the Baron's adaptation of her story was fantastical and inaccurate. She furiously clarified that she'd not named her son Alexis, but had in fact given him the name Alexander after his late father. However, beyond that, Anna never wanted to talk about her son or her late husband. In 1929, Anna would later elaborate on the story. She talked of her family's helplessness and feelings of constant dread in Ekaterinburg. She branded the Red Soldiers, quote, terrible and unkind. They'd used vile language and called her father terrible names. She described waking up in a peasant cart after being rescued, traveling for weeks and weeks with little food and water, clad in an old woman's clothes. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Grifter. Next week, we'll continue discussing the story of Anna Anderson, and we'll learn how, for nearly a decade, Anna bounced between castles and homes, entirely dependent on the kindness of royal or wealthy strangers. We'll also learn how some of her powerful detractors tried in vain to discredit her over the course of her lifetime. So stay tuned for more. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. See you at our next episode.